You're listening to In Conversation, the podcast from Creative Coverage, with me, Tim Saunders. Today, I'm with the glassblower and engraver, Dominic Fonde, who is based in Japan. He has over 20 years' experience as a professional artist and is a fellow of the Guild of Glass Engravers and an associate member of the Royal Society of Miniature Painters, Sculptors and Gravers. So how did it all start, Dominic? The very earliest thing, I actually went off to college to study ceramics and discovered I didn't really like having my hands in cold, wet clay. And I would wander down the corridor to the glassblowing studio to get warm. <laughs> and eventually I jumped ship and uh, it was, yeah, it was warm and a lot more fun in there. So that's that was the earliest thing. I, think, I guess it's been a little bit of a meandering sort of, there was never really a plan. I kind of fell into what looked interesting. Um, the engraving came about quite a few years down the line when I started writing short stories. I loved science fiction. I was trying to get short stories into various kind of small press magazines and not having that much success. And one Christmas when I was working in, in London, a friend came in to buy a jug as a Christmas present. And I remember her testing out all these jugs to make sure she got one that did not drip. And it just amused me. And I wrote this little comic 100 word short story about a jug that has a guilt complex because it keeps dripping on the tablecloth and just very roughly scrawled it down the side of a jug. And that was her Christmas present. And I remember handing it over and everybody, there was really a moment where everybody kind of sat up and took notice and you think there's, there's something in this. And it spiraled from there. And then much later when I was living in Singapore and I didn't have access to a blowing studio any, any longer, then the engraving really took over and I started including actual images as well as words in, in the engravings. So that that was a big change. It must be very labour intensive, not only to make it, but to to do the engraving. Oddly, the, the I think the longest part of it is actually writing the stories, getting the stories right. Once it actually doesn't take that long to to engrave 100 words. I mean, it doesn't take up that much space. But the big problem is if you make a spelling mistake. In very rare cases, you can polish a single word out, but the light on the glass will always, you know, the, you won't have an, that perfect smooth glass surface. There will be an indentation there. I can spot it, so I'm sure other people can. So if I make a spelling mistake, yeah, there's there's often a little temper tantrum and then you have to start again. <laughs> How long does it take you to, to produce such an item? In terms of writing the stories, they can sit around for weeks and months before I actually, I'm sure I really want to use it. Um, actual physical process, some of the recent ones I've been doing uh, have been on kind of very small shot glasses, little tiny, you know, single shot whiskey glasses. And they, a 100 word story, 200 word story will be about maybe two hours. And you mark it out with the pen, you try and check spelling mistakes, and then you take the drill and letter by letter, you know, you start engraving. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite tense. The longer stories, 
I've done on large bowls and plates up to a couple of thousand words and they can be that can be a, a day. I don't I don't like stretching it over two days because somehow they I'm not a calligrapher for all I deal with text and that somehow the text it doesn't seem to match it. I can tell where I've stopped on one day and picked up the next day. So it's important to have that continuity and you do the whole thing. Drawing is somehow a lot easier. There's always a natural place to stop and carry it over to the next day. I know how long it can take to write a 1000 word article. So you have got the addition of composing that thousand words or 2000 words which can take a very long time, can't it? To it can, get, yeah. Get yeah. all the words in the right place and make it flow. And then you're also engraving. Are you you making the glass as well? It depends. Um, I do like taking a kind of mundane off-the-shelf item and turning it into something special. You, you know, everyone's got a favourite coffee cup or a favourite wine glass. They they don't have to be expensive things you know it could be a gift it could be something that you've just had for years and has become sentimental it could be something I've made myself I do a lot of small plates small bowls paperweights uh, I mean I live in Japan's little kind of sake glasses um, I'm not that precise in the blowing studio so wine glasses don't come out so well so usually I subcontract and ask someone else to make that I think it's just trying to find the right object and match it to the right story or vice versa that's the more important thing and that must be a very challenging thing to do I mean I've got a stockpile of stuff you know you do you, try, you keep things around things and they these might be useful I was given a very beautiful uh, optical quality paperweight about two years ago and it's still sitting on my desk saying kind of what do you want to put on here and I still haven't decided <laughs> um, on the other hand uh, just before Christmas I was in in Japan we call them the 100 yen shop I found uh, you know these magnifying glasses like a child would use but they've actually got good glass lenses in and I bought about a dozen of them and I've been engraving on those that uh, that was a wonderful find. That that's not necessarily stories. That's very image based. But like I say, it's sometimes you just find an object and it it just fires the imagination. How long ago did you actually start marrying the stories to the the items? It probably would have been about ninety seven or ninety eight when I started writing stories, and then there's been kind of a, an on off kind of gradual process I stopped writing stories for a while in Singapore um, partly because at the time I felt I'd done enough stories and I was getting much more into images of birds because there was a lot of nice bird life in Singapore and I enjoyed looking at birds um, also you know the approach to arts in Singapore I was I was finding people would simply not read the stories so I was getting a little frustrated so I had a, I had a I had a bit of a gap Singapore is a former British colony a lot of the mainstream media is in English but you also hear a lot of uh, a lot of Chinese a lot of Malay a lot of Indian uh, Tamil um, there's a very big mix of languages but it uh, 
very frenetic place. People don't really have time to stop and look at art. Um, what took you to Singapore and then Japan? Well, we ended up in Japan because my wife is Japanese. We we met in Singapore. I had watched a lot of my friends go off. They took a gap year, went off traveling around the year for the world for a year when when we left college. I couldn't afford to do that. I was, uh, you know, the day after my graduation, I was sending out job applications and was lucky, got a fantastic job in a glass studio in London. So I got to do what I was wanting, but I never got to travel. And I thought, you know, you missed your chance. And then when I was I was in, in my 30s by this point and I was I was working on the newsletter for the Contemporary Glass Society and an ad an email came in for a position in a glass studio in Singapore and I put it in the newsletter and we sent the newsletter out and then I just thought well I actually do quite fancy this so I sent off I sent off a reply to it as well and actually got an email back saying come out to Singapore it would only be for about six months um, but then I met Yoshko and didn't want to go anywhere. <laughs> I've been in been in Asia ever since. Ah, <laughs> uh, true love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good for you. Do you ever return to the UK? Usually, I would come back about once a year. Um, for a long time, we would come over in the summer. But usually now we would go. We would come. Uh, start of December um, to see my father. Um, he's 91. His birthday is at the start of December. Yeah. But with you know with this with the pandemic, there's there's no way we can actually risk that. You don't know if you're going to get stuck in the UK. You don't know if you're never going to be able to come back to Japan. It's you don't want to risk actually carrying yeah, a new okay. strain somewhere. Here in Japan, I think it's it's much less intense than what I'm seeing on the news in in the UK, and certainly much less damaging than the US. But it's it's not easy. I mean, it's pretty much everyone I'm talking to, email, you know, phone call, everybody I know has lost someone directly because of COVID. I have. Yeah, there's been some school friends gone, you know, her friend's mother has gone early on. I'm sure there'll be more. It's ah, it's terrifying. That's mostly in the UK. That's friends in the UK. Um, Case numbers, I mean, in Japan, because people have always been willing to wear the masks. That's part of the culture. Even before all of this hit, if you had a cold, Mm -hmm. it was very accepted, very common to see you know, people on the bus, on the train, already wearing a mask. It, it, you know, wear the mask. It works. Yeah. Um, it really helps. And you go into the supermarkets and, you know, there's, you know, the hand sanitizer is there. Everybody uses it. You see the guys kind of, you know, wiping down the shopping trolleys. There's a level of acceptance that it's dangerous and it has to be dealt with. There's there's also kind of a willingness I'm not sure if if the right thing is uh, to say community spirit here, but uh, certainly kind of if if the government says jump, people people respond. I mean, that that also doesn't that sounds like people just do what they're told. But I think there's kind of an understanding that there's not that like we're seeing in America and Europe where there's that I don't want I don't want the injection. It might be 
or that it's all a conspiracy. You don't, you definitely don't encounter that attitude here, which I think is very healthy. The first thing coming up will be an online show with uh, Village Arts, which I was quite nice. I mean, it was, uh, I was contacted out of the blue by a guy called Mike Roberts, who was organising the online shows for them. And he had seen drawings I was posting on Facebook and Instagram. Because uh, last year I took part in the 100 Days Challenge, which I think started in New Zealand. And then there was a group from Edinburgh College of Art where I did my master's. And I was asked, would you like to take part? And I, I do love to draw. I try and draw every single day. And we live on a small island in the, the Bay of Kobe. It's actually an artificial island. It's got square edges. Yeah. <laughs> I can literally walk. <laughs> Hey, that's work. a bit different to living um, in the northeast, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I was enjoying going out into the docks with the sketchbook, and so I, I did, I did a little online show with them last year, and they asked me to do another one specifically with my glass. So that will come up in February. And then hopefully later in the year there'll be a Hilliard Society of Miniatures. There should hopefully be the Royal Society of Miniatures show. There's hopefully some more things in Japan as well, but it's you always simply got to wait and see if they go ahead or not. Yeah. Everything's in a state of flux. <laughs> so how is your Japanese? Um, or, do, or do you rely on your wife to uh, get you into the galleries out there? <laughs> I can't shake the accent. My pronunciation is terrible, but... Uh, you, you must um, be one of the few Geordies to live on Kobe, wasn't you? There's no, if there's, not the only one. Yeah, I don't think I've met... Don't think I've met another Geordie here. You do meet... You, you do... Uh, I mean, Kobe is actually a cosmopolitan town. Rockall Island as well seem... Because there's one of the international schools here, so you do meet a lot of non-Japanese people. Don't think I've met anybody else from the Northeast. <laughs> But yeah, I sit every morning, I kind of, uh, you know, I sit and practice my Japanese. But one thing is as well, I mean, I work from home and you're doing, you know, sometimes 10 hours of engraving a day. You don't actually get to speak to many people. So my reading is pretty fluent, but uh, my speaking is fairly diabolical. <laughs> it's morning in Japan. I know it's evening for you. So uh, good morning. Ohayo gozaimasu. Watashi no namaiwa Dominic desu. And that basically means, good morning, my name is Dominic, I am English. <laughs> well, that's um, very impressive. Sometimes you kind of, you encounter very wrong English on menus and signs and things. But I, I know I say all sorts of terrible things. I mean, there's, uh, I still can't pronounce it correctly. When you get in and out of the lift and there's the automatic, you know, doors are closing. And the way I was pronouncing it in you know, Japanese, it was coming out as dead body is coming, which was not, <laughs> not helpful or useful in any way, shape or form. <laughs> so how long have you been learning Japanese for? Um, it's been six years now. Oh. It's a bit of a mind bender. I mean, you've got this, because you can write it, you've got the hiragana uh, um, set of characters, which is the most basic. And then you've got katakana, which is used for kind of foreign words. So my name is written in katakana. And then you've got kanji, which is 
uh, kind of derived. I think the history is it actually it's quite similar looking to Chinese characters. And there's a good few thousand kanji characters. So I struggle with that. But I'm I'm pretty fluent reading hiragana katakana. It's a, it's a tricky one. And you can write it vertically. You can write to left is common these days. But I still get books from the library. I, you know, it's part of my practice. I kind of, I read, I work my way through the children's section in in the local library you do encounter books that are written you know right to left but also left to right that can be odd when you kind of oh i'm you know going the wrong way can you give me an idea of your typical day are you purely engraving or are you making glass as well it varies most of the time i'd be engraving that's the bulk of what i do but my routine is because we have no daylight saving in japan so to kind of maximise the light, I'm usually I'm up with the sunrise, which at the moment is about well, it's just a bit of a grey bit of a grey day today actually, but it's it should just be starting to get light now. But usually, I mean, I'm awake about six, and you know, check the email. I I do maybe thirty minutes. I've I've got an app on the computer to practice the Japanese. Um, and then I'll draw until about nine o'clock. And I always try and do a bit of drawing practice to warm up and then I'll get into the engraving. And I will usually work to about three, three thirty, and then I go out and I will walk a lap of Rocco Island. And if the weather's good, I'll take the sketchbook with me and I'll do some sketching while I'm out and about. Mm. Uh, other days, Sometimes you assign a day to actually write stories. And usually once a month, I head up to Osaka and I rent a day uh, blowing in glass. I'll give him a little shout out. GGG Glass Blowing in Osaka, run by uh, Keita-san. And it's a fabulous studio. It's very friendly, beautiful equipment, a lot of fun to work there. And I I will stockpile paperweights, small bowls, things like that that I can engrave on, take to craft fairs, put in exhibitions. How much glass can you make in a day? It, ve- it really varies. I being being someone who likes miniature objects, I work on small things. Um, so usually I would do if I'm making paperweights, I could get about uh, ten to fifteen done in couple of hours. I don't make terribly complex shapes. When I used to work in the Midlands, um, I worked in a studio where we would do a lot of very large pieces and they would have things like an octopus sculpted clambering around the outside of the bowl and you've got to bring a separate piece of glass for the head, the body, all the legs. A piece like that, you know, could be an hour in the making. So you're not going to make many pieces a day, but you could be charging five or six hundred pounds a piece, whereas, you know, my approach to being in the, in the hot shop, I'm I'm making blank objects to engrave, so the the detailed work comes later. Today is probably going to be a drawing day because I know I've got an exhibition coming up in April, which will all be based around cherry blossoms. It's a very Japanese theme, so I'm I'm working out some designs with cherry blossoms, and then they will be stipple engraved. And stipple engraving is very, very slow. You're just 
you have a, a tungsten scriber it's about the size of a pen with a little pin head and you're just tapping against the glass so it can be it could be five or six hours to cover the surface of a little sake glass so that the engraving will probably start towards the end of the week you must be a very patient man <laughs> you you learn patience doing this one of the reasons i think i ended up in the glass studio originally was because actually it was very fast and i i wasn't patient enough to wait for clay to dry to the correct consistency to work on it um glass blowing seemed much more immediate but uh if you want a result you've got to learn to be patient yeah when you are engraving i expect if you're too heavy with your hand you know that that could break the glass it's possible i've i've had i've had a couple of things break recently but that actually turned out to be because the glass was not annealed properly um when as glass cools at about 400, 400 degrees it goes through the it goes through a phase change um and it has to if it cools too quickly it will crack um, or there will be stress in the glass. And if you if you scratch it, if you tap it too hard, you release the tension and it goes it goes pop. Nothing spectacular, but you've got a you've got a crack running through your glass and it, you can't work on it. Now we know that's a problem with these particular pieces. We just you know cool them more carefully, anneal them longer, and that problem will go away. You don't break that many pieces. More likely when I'm doing the washing up, you know, get clumsy and drop something. <laughs> <laughs> Not one of yours, though. Ah, uh, it's happened. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, it's okay if I do it. I can make another one. <laughs> You've got a furnace with a crucible of molten glass inside it. Typically, it's around about 1,000 degrees or 1080 degrees. If anybody out there is working with ceramics it would be the same kind of temperatures as earthenware and you use you know furnaces these days are often electric but traditionally they would be gas fired and you've got a long metal pole your blowing iron and you heat the tip up hot glass won't stick to cold metal it's got to be hot and gather an amount of glass on the end and basically shape it, blow it into whatever it is you're planning to make. But the, the trick is you've got to keep the eye in turning. If you've ever tried keeping honey on a knife, you know, it wants to drip. So you've got to keep on turning constantly. And if you turn smoothly and regularly, your glass will actually stay pretty much globe shaped. And, you know, it's a combination of surface tension and centrifugal action will help you shape the glass it's going to come out round everything starts off as a bubble you blow down the eye the, the blowing eye in the pipe is about four foot long and you blow down it you put a bubble into the glass and then you can expand that bubble blow it up and that will become a wine glass a vase a bowl whatever it is you need to make Everything is affected by COVID these days. Usually in the blowing studio, you actually work in a team. And once the glass gets above a certain size, you know, you're actually shaping it with a wooden paddle or a graphite paddle. Um, there's certain tools, even a wad of damp newspaper to chill the glass in a certain area. And your assistant can blow down 
the blowing iron while you are shaping the glass to get a certain result. But you can't do that now with because of risk of COVID. You know, you don't want to share irons. You've got to work out another way of doing this. I hadn't seen it before. There's a there's a hose, a little kind of plastic tube that you can attach to the end of a blowing iron so you can actually give yourself a bench blow, as we would call it. Um, it didn't really work for me. I found another. I just in the end, I altered the shapes I wanted to make and kept things very small. So it hasn't affected me that much. But it must be a problem for people doing large work. Glass blowing is a complex process. I mean, the other side of what I do, I mean, I, I do a lot of, I mean, the engraving. Maybe I should talk about, I mean, the, the process of that, some of the tools I use for that. Yes. Because I actually good. started off with a, with a drill. The, the stipple engraving has been, again, has happened within the, the last year or so because Certainly, there was a lot more time with so many exhibitions on, you know, being postponed or cancelled. I actually had time to actually sit and learn the process of stipple engraving, where you're basically building up an image out of lots and lots of tiny, tiny little marks on the surface of the glass. But before that, I mean, for the text and the stories, you're actually using, it looks like a little tiny dentist drill. And it is a drill, you know, something like a Dremel. You know, you're buzzing away, abrading the surface of the glass away. So at the end of the day, the room is full of dust and you've got to mop everything down. So um, that's that's the other side of what I do. And that's the bulk of what I do. I mentioned earlier on I was doing these magnifying glasses with images on it. The images are all people wearing. It started, the first one was a self-portrait. Then the next one was my wife. And then ongoing it's just been people I've met and everybody is wearing these masks um so it's it's about how we look at the world right now but I'm sure Covid will affect some of the stories I just don't know exactly how yet thank you for your time Dominic pleasure